I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 128, Justice in America, The View from the Jury. Well, I'm really on a roll today, today being July 4th, 2020, because this is the second podcast I'm doing today. But we live in very special times, and I've been meaning to share this with you for quite some time. The this being something that happened back in May 2013, when I served on a jury in a criminal trial in Westchester County. In fact, I wrote this blog just a few days after finishing as foreperson of a jury in a fairly serious criminal trial. And at the time when I wrote the blog, I wanted to put out my impressions and thoughts while they were still fresh in my mind. So what you're going to hear now is what I was thinking literally just a few days after I finished being foreperson on this jury. Well, to begin with, this was my first time on a jury of any kind. I was one of some 400 people who received a summons. I have no idea why I was chosen to be on a criminal case. There were several civil cases that also required jurors. I assume my being called up to sit in the jury seats where I was questioned by the judge, prosecutor, and defense attorney was similarly coincidental. I apparently passed muster. The jury was informed by the judge before our jury started deliberations, before the trial began, that I was to be the foreperson. Neither I nor anyone else on the 12-person jury objected. But enough about me. Let's get to the case. The following are the agreed-upon facts unless otherwise indicated. So these are the facts. In the summer of 2012, in a city a little north of New York City, a couple were arguing in their apartment. The man, African-American, was in his 40s. His girlfriend, 20 years younger, was Caucasian. I'm not going to reveal any names to protect the not guilty. At some point before 2 in the morning, the man left. His girlfriend followed him into the street. At this point, an unmarked police car with two officers in plain clothes drove by on the street. They were on a carjacking and auto theft patrol that is seeking to stop people from breaking into and stealing cars. But noticing the woman standing in the street, they slowed down. The police then noticed a man, her boyfriend, on the sidewalk, who, they said, briefly ducked down behind a car when he saw them, the police. This resulted in the officers stopping in their car. Now, accounts differed slightly as to the words exchanged at this point. The officers say that the man said to them, quote, what the fuck are you looking at, unquote. 
Note that cursing a police officer is not illegal in this jurisdiction. I just wanted to point that out. In any case, this was enough to get the officers out of their car. They approached the man who then allegedly said, What the fuck do you want? Although the officers were dressed in plain clothes, they claimed that they had badges on lanyards around their necks, which were clearly visible. They claimed they identified themselves as police officers. They noticed that the man had a gym bag in one hand and a small packet in the other, and he dropped them both on the ground. He started to walk away. Suspecting, the police officers said that the small bag contained an illicit drug, they told the man he was under arrest. The police say they no longer suspected a carjacking or auto theft at this point. But the man kept walking. One of the officers ran up to him and grabbed his arm in an effort to handcuff him. In the brief struggle that ensued, the officer sustained a broken nose, allegedly the result of the suspect's elbow, which the suspect swung behind him, and his partner sustained a broken hand. This was acknowledged by that officer to have been caused by his punching the suspect's head in an effort to subdue him. So just to be clear, one police officer sustained a broken nose, allegedly the result of the suspect's elbow, and the other sustained a broken hand because he, the officer, punched the suspect in the head in an effort to subdue him. The suspect was charged with, and this is the name of the offense, assaulting a police officer. That's a felony and with three misdemeanors obstructing governmental administration, resisting arrest, and possession of marijuana, which was said to be found in the tiny packet. The only tangible evidence presented in the course of the trial were stipulations by a doctor that the officer's nose had indeed been broken, and by a forensic lab that the contents of the dime bag were indeed marijuana. The rest was testimony by the two police officers, in addition to testimony by two additional officers who arrived on the scene after or just as the man was handcuffed, and testimony from the man's girlfriend. Before we, the jury, commenced deliberation, here's what I was thinking about what had actually happened. A man and his girlfriend are having an argument. He leaves, she follows him out to the street, and their bad luck, an unmarked police car comes by. The officers were right to slow down and see what was going on, but no one alleged that there was any physical violence whatsoever in the street at this point. Indeed, all the parties agreed that the couple were not even involved in a verbal argument at this point. But I think a woman standing in the street at two in the morning with a man nearby on the sidewalk was ample reason for a police car to slow down. 
The officers were similarly right to be concerned that a carjacking or auto theft might have been about to happen. But no carjacking or auto theft did happen, and the police soon concluded that no carjacking or auto theft was taking place. So why then was the man put under arrest? The officers say it was because of the small amount of marijuana which they suspected was in the packet and apparently was. But I think a more likely explanation is that they were angered by his attitude and cursing, neither of which, again, are illegal in the jurisdiction in which these events occurred. Was the man right to be angered? Well, who wouldn't be angered if, right after a nonviolent dispute you were having with your significant other in public, you were approached by strangers looking into your business? If the strangers were police officers and you knew you were doing nothing wrong, would this make you less angry? Not likely. Should the man have been more cooperative with the police? Sure. That would have served all parties well. But did the man break any law by having an aggressive attitude? I couldn't help thinking. This is justice in America. An argument with your significant other with no violence to either party ends with you being charged with a felony, assaulting a police officer. The question was, whose fault was that. Now, it was the jury's job. We were instructed by the judge, who in my view did a good job, that our job on the jury was to determine whether the facts alleged by the prosecution were true. In order to reach a verdict of guilty, we had to believe the prosecution's account, quote, Beyond a reasonable doubt. You've all heard of that, I'm sure. Everyone knows about that standard. The judge correctly explained that in human affairs, few things are subject to 100% certainty. So we did not need to be 100% sure of every charge. But we had to be a lot more than pretty or even mostly sure. If the prosecution presented 100 points and we had doubts about even one of them, we were bound to find the defendant not guilty. In fact, we all swore an oath to uphold that standard. Now, the prosecution's case against the defendant for assaulting a police officer depended on three points. Each of these had to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in order for us, the jury, to render a verdict of guilty. A, that the injury broken nose had in fact occurred. B, that the defendant knew at the time he caused the injury that the recipient of the injury was a police officer who was legally performing his work and see that the injury was a deliberate act by the defendant that he swung his elbow with the express intent of breaking the officer's nose or at least causing him some kind of bodily harm. 
Let's look at point A, the broken nose. Well, that was beyond dispute. It was acknowledged by the defense. Point B, that the defendant knew he was in a tussle with a police officer when the defendant swung his arm. That was not immediately obvious. At what point did the defendant know the two men who approached him in plain clothes, that's important, in plain clothes, were police officers? Presumably when one of them said, you're under arrest, which presumably happened before the fight. But there was no proof, like the broken nose, to indicate exactly when the defendant was so informed. And as for point C, that was the least obviously true. Did the defendant swing his arm to hurt the officer, or was the officer hurt as the defendant struggled to break free? The defense, in fact, claimed that the broken nose was accidentally caused by the officer's partner during the fight. This assault charge was by far the most serious, and I suggested to the jury that we consider that first. And these were our deliberations as a jury. First, I should mention the jury consisted of 12 people, nine women, and three men. No African Americans were on the jury. An African American man who was questioned by the judge, prosecutor, and defense attorney during the selection phase was not chosen. I began by asking for a straw poll on the assault charge, non-binding, to get a sense of where we stood as a jury. The majority of the jury were undecided. Among those who were decided, there was a slight majority in favor of a guilty vote. The undecideds were interested in the guilty and not guilty voters explaining their opinion. Those who thought the defendant was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt cited the broken nose and their belief that the defendant deliberately tried to break the officer's nose or otherwise do him bodily damage in order to escape. Those who thought the defendant was not guilty were less than sure that the defendant knew he was swinging his elbow at a police officer and even more unsure that the defendant was deliberately trying to hurt the officer. These jurors thought it a reasonable possibility that the defendant was trying to break loose and flee, and the officer's nose was a result of the defendant flailing in an attempt to break his arms free, rather than a deliberate attack on the face of the officer. I was among the jurors who had reasonable doubts about the defendant's guilt on this charge, mainly because I saw no evidence he was trying to do harm in contrast to break loose and free. I mentioned the well-known distinction in sociobiology between fight and flight. Most mobile organisms do one or the other as a first response to imminent danger. And there was also the question of the reliability and truth of the prosecution's case. One problem with presenting more than one witness on any side of a case is that they all must agree. And there were inconsistencies in the testimony of the officers. And the prosecutor in his summation made no attempt to explain this. 
We took another straw poll before we broke for lunch. The undecideds were now in the minority, and those who had changed their vote had decided to join the not guilty voters. But there was still more than one juror strongly in favor of a guilty vote. When we resumed deliberations after lunch, I mentioned that if we could not reach a unanimous verdict, and we reported that to the judge, then the judge might well declare us as a hung jury. The judge could then dismiss the case, but more likely would allow the prosecution to decide whether to retry it. In any case, our deliberations would likely have been in vain. Those who wanted a guilty verdict said they very much did not want that to happen. They wanted our jury, our jury, to reach a verdict. I mentioned that, short of a time machine, there was no way we could go back in time and see for ourselves what actually had happened on that street. I said, all we therefore had to go by was what the prosecution and the defense and their witnesses had told us. And although there, of course, were strong differences between the prosecution and the defense, there were no inconsistencies or contradictions within the defense's case. In contrast, everyone on the jury agreed that there were indeed inconsistencies in the prosecution's case. I asked the jury, does this not mean that we have reasonable doubt? We went around the table and expressed our views. Those who had wanted a guilty verdict still felt in their bones that the defendant was guilty, but they could see that there could conceivably be a little bit of doubt because of the contradictions in the prosecution's case. The four jurors who had wanted a guilty verdict now each confirmed that they had this doubt. We voted again. Our jury was unanimous on the assault felony charge. Not guilty. But there were other charges. The sense of most people on our jury was that the defendant had indeed at some point resisted arrest and that the bag he had dropped contained marijuana. The judge had instructed us that we were not to base our verdict regarding the marijuana charge, a very minor misdemeanor, on any view that marijuana should be legal and the law was wrong. Our job was to judge or try the facts, not the law. But the second charge, obstructing governmental administration, was indeed a problem for many jurors, again including me. How is that different from resisting arrest? And if no different, why was the defendant being charged twice with the same crime? During the trial, no charge other than the felony assault had been addressed by the judge or the lawyers. We asked the judge to explain the difference between those two charges, obstructing government administration and resisting arrest. He replied by reading the law for each charge. We still needed clarification. The jurors and I talked in our room. 
I propose that we go back and ask the judge, can you give us an example of a crime which would be obstructing governmental administration and which would not be resisting arrest? We indeed went back and asked the judge for that clarification. His reply was extremely helpful. Obstructing governmental administration in this case would be any alleged crimes which were not resisting arrest. I then asked the jury if they could think of any actions by the defendant against the police on that evening that obstructed the police other than the alleged assault for which we had found the defendant not guilty and resisting arrest. No one could think of such an example because, in fact, none had been presented in the trial. So we voted on the obstructing governmental administration charge. A unanimous vote, not guilty. We turn to the defendant's resisting arrest, which in many ways was beyond dispute. He certainly had resisted what the two approaching men had told him to do. But did he know that they were police officers? The defense had mentioned that they were dressed in plain clothes, and the girlfriend had said she and the defendant had not known who the two men were at first. But what about the moment when they said, when the two men said, you're under arrest? Without any evidence or testimony that the defendant did not know the men were police officers at the moment they tried to put him in handcuffs, which seemed highly unlikely, the vast majority of the jury wanted a guilty verdict on this misdemeanor charge. I thought that the defendant had been mistreated by the police in this incident, that they had allowed it to escalate and had even instigated the escalation by their poor performance. But I could not think of any evidence that showed the defendant did not know the two men were police at the time the handcuffs were applied. I and the few other jurors joined the majority and reluctantly voted guilty on resisting arrest. I similarly was not happy about the possession of marijuana charge. In May of 2013, when this trial took place, and even before then, such possession was already legal in many jurisdictions. And I thought back then that it would sooner or later be legal in every jurisdiction. Everyone on the jury acknowledged this. But we had to have reasonable doubt about whether the defendant was carrying marijuana in order for us to acquit him on this charge. For example, we needed to think that the police might have planted this evidence. Unfortunately for the defendant, the defense attorney had made no claim that this is what had happened, and no evidence or even argument had been presented that the police had done this even though I and several other jurors suspected that that might well have been what had happened. But on this last very minor charge, because none of that evidence had been presented, the jury's verdict was again unanimous, though also mostly reluctant, guilty on possessing marijuana. We went back out into the courtroom. I stood up, 
in court from my juror's seat and announce the verdict. It's just like you see it done on television. When I was asked by the clerk for the jury's unanimous verdict on the assaulting a police officer charge, which was the felony by far the most serious charge, I said not guilty with an emphasis on the not. I have to tell you, it did my soul good to be able to say this. A man who had been doing nothing wrong except technically possessing an illegal substance, which is legal to possess in many, many parts of our country, had been legal to possess in many parts of our country back in 2013, had stood trial and he stood to lose years of his life in prison if he had found guilty of that felony. The jury informally had all agreed that the police had not handled this situation well, allowing a suspicion of car theft, which had not been going on, to escalate into a struggle which had resulted in a broken nose and a broken hand. And we, the jury, had agreed formally in our verdict that we did not believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant had sought to break the officer's nose or do any harm to his body. So, the defendant had been found not guilty on this very serious charge. The jury was dismissed and we left the courtroom. One of the alternates came up to me and said, quote, Good thing I wasn't on the jury. I would have been the one holdout on your decision. He was talking about our acquitting the defendant on that serious felony charge. Good thing indeed. Though this alternate might well have come to agree with our decision had he sat with us in the deliberations and heard our step-by-step -step reasoning. But I believe a very good thing was indeed done that day. It's all too rare to be able to have a profound influence on the life of a person you do not even know, but I believe we did that day. We fairly considered all the evidence and the testimony and concluded that he was guilty on the two most minor charges. His acquittal on the serious felony charge will give him a chance to reset his life. Given that he had done nothing wrong that evening until the police dressed in plain clothes approached, he deserved that chance in a moral sense. And the lack of evidence that he intended to hurt the officers showed he deserved that chance in the legal sense. On that day, at least, I believe justice had been done in America. And today, a little more than seven years later, I still believe that justice was done. If anything, I feel badly about finding him guilty on the marijuana charge. If I had to bet my life on it, I would say the police probably planted that bag of marijuana. But again, unfortunately, the defense attorney did nothing to refute that charge. In our country, in July 2020, it's never become more clear and obvious how African-American men are preyed upon by police. Fortunately, in our case, the case that 
I was foreperson of a jury, which considered seven years ago, nothing as bad as that had been done to this defendant. But what had been done to him was bad enough. And I'll always feel good that we acquitted him on those serious charges. I have no idea what happened to the defendant and his girlfriend. I hope that he got a better defense attorney when those charges against him, the marijuana charge and resisting arrest, were appealed. Or I hope his attorney did a better job on at least the marijuana charge that, than he did in our trial. But most of all, I hope this gentleman is now leading a happy, successful life. And if he is, I'm glad that maybe, perhaps, I had some small part in helping that happen. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you found this podcast instructive. I'm going to be trying to do podcasts much more frequently now. In this day and age, it's hard to stay silent. So, all of you, all of my listeners, I hope you are safe and well. And until the next time, I'll be talking to you here on this podcast. Enjoy. Athens, 2042 A.D. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left, again, into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson still code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.